Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. What do you get when you put an art teacher, a history teacher, a philosopher and a civil engineer in a room with each other. No, it's not the beginning of a bad joke. It's another episode of The Game Changes. Josh Farr began his adult life with a first class honours degree from the University of New South Wales as a civil engineer. Since then, he's just expanded his whole realm of thinking about his place in the world and what he can do to to it. He is truly a continuous learner and unlearner. We're really excited to talk to him today on the Game Change podcast. Let's go. Josh, it is wonderful to have you with us today. Uh, and I'm going to launch directly into our very, very first question. And it's a question that we ask all of our Game Changers. And that is, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get to where you are today? Awesome. Very nice. Well, fellas, thanks first and foremost for having me on. It's awesome to have a chat with you. I have no idea what happens when you put a bunch of random people together in a room on a podcast on a Friday afternoon. So we'll see what happens. Uh, it's going to be good. My story is grew up in a country town, grew up in Orange. Um, and I went to Sydney for university. About two kids out of my high school of 200 went to Sydney specifically for uni. Uh, I'd never been on campus. I had stepped foot on one university in my life before I chose to go there. Uh, and evidently, I wasn't in love with the degree that I made randomly as a choice at 18. So I did everything right as a student that I thought I was meant to do, got the grades, got the scholarships, volunteered, the whole shebang, graduated with a great job, whizzed through a grad program. I was a little high achiever. Uh, there was even a slow motion video of me on the university engineering website, running up a set of stairs in slow-mo with like, I was a little like poster boy of civil engineering, uh, which was a bit of a joke. And... I realized quite quickly I wasn't happy. I just didn't like what I was doing. And I thought I was the only one. And so the big realization, the first big realization in my career, which changed things was, oh, actually most people don't love what they do. And when you're at school or when you're at university, that had never crossed my mind because as a student, you've got this scarcity mindset of like, can I even get a job? So like loving what you do is based on doing something. And for me, I wasn't doing anything. So that was the first big realization was like, oh, wow, actually lots of people struggle with what they do. They're not passionate about it pre-COVID. Um, and then from there, things changed. I left, I traveled, spent two years overseas. Um, and then overseas, I realized that, you know, living in Neverland wasn't the answer either. I was kind of like working in nightclubs and running pub crawls around London and, you know, getting people drunk professionally for a living, which was fun. And as a civil engineer, I was uniquely qualified to do because I had an I had a undergrad degree in drinking, basically. Um, but <laughs> I thought I thought there was there was something more. It took me a couple of years, to be fair. But I thought there was something more I could do for the world than just get people drunk as a living. So I sort of was like, what's the opposite of my life look like? Maybe I could help people for a living. Um, came back and worked in nonprofits for a couple of years. And then three years ago, started my own business, which, yeah, now we work with 33 unis, a couple of state governments and run programs to help young people figure out who are they, where do they want to go in life and, and how can they help other people along the way? It's really interesting to, to listen to that particular journey. Josh, you're still a very young man and uh, coming from a very small town of Orange to, to the big smoke and then finding yourself in a special undergraduate degree in London there of, um, of drinking. Clearly, you and Phil have something very closely in common. Uh, but I'm really interested to learn a little bit about 
what you learned about yourself during mm. those two years of travel. I mean, you, you yes. covered 39 countries and no doubt so many different cultures, languages, foods, uh, yes. lifestyles, uh, even, even the entire uh, circumstance of the people of those places would be so foreign to you, yes. no pun intended there, to, of yes. course, the, the notion of live, growing up in orange. Yes. So can you yes. talk a little bit about what, what did you actually really learn about yourself in that kind of journey and experience? The biggest one. So there's a every good story of someone who travels start with 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 a reference to another country and another religion. So here's mine. There's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk called mm-hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh, and Thich Nhat Hanh says, amongst writing hundreds of books, this one quote which I think sums it up: "There is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way." And so people see that on a t-shirt. Like, what does that mean? I went and I lived in a ski town, which is in like the highest, highest socioeconomic demographic in the world. It's the Aspen of Canada, you know, Whistler in British Columbia. There are multi, multi, multi-million dollar houses. People put their kids in daycare is ski school and it's thousands of dollars per kid per day. And they sit at the bar and they drink overpriced beer and literally $10,000 for babysitting for the day. Like it is a wealthy place. Just to live there in my second season, I lived with about 20 something people. I paid $800 a month and I shared a bed um, to the point where a housemate actually once I had to, well, I won't name and shame, but I had to ask him to remove the house because of some things that went down in the bedroom. Um, So like it was a dodgy sort of situation. And there was this class of people living there just trying to survive who served the beers in town. And then there was this rich elite. And what I noticed living there was on the same day, you could have someone come into the store and it was the most pristine, perfect snow day, two foot of powder, just amazing. And like she or he walks in with their beautiful wife or husband, they're in $10,000 worth of kit. Like they're staying in like the Ritz, like the nicest place and they're miserable because something went wrong. Their beer didn't come out. They got the wrong sauce on their burger. They, the lines were too busy. And then I went to countries where people had nothing. And admittedly, in most country, in a lot of countries where people have nothing, there are a lot of people who are genuinely suffering. But I also saw people who were just stoked to have shoes on their feet, sending their kids to school, clean drinking water. And so as I sort of saw this like huge juxtaposition between like the extremes of wealth and like what actual poverty looked like, which I had never lived in or experienced before, I realized that like it's all your mindset. It is about how you view the situation. It's the meaning you give things, not your circumstances. And now very much what I've come to believe over those years of traveling is you can be really happy living off not much and you can be really miserable having everything financially or in status or success or the family or the house or whatever. That doesn't guarantee happiness. So for me, I need to be happy. My definition of success is that right now on this podcast, I'm having a good time with you two. And if you're having a good time, that's success. And if this is good, and then I run a workshop this afternoon and that's good, then I've had a good day. And if I have a bunch of good days, I have a good week and et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting than- that you mentioned um, Nick, Nick Napan because uh, he's familiar to me as well. Uh, I'm of Catholic faith. So he's actually, mm. written, he's actually written a book called Going Home, uh, mm. Jesus and Buddha are Brothers. And it's mm. a fascinating read. And at the, at the heart, of course, of, of that particular book is this notion of us uh, living our truth. Mm. you know uh, and what I'm hearing you share with us today about the learnings about yourself uh, at a very young age is that although there were many things that attracted you to the party lifestyle and everything that comes with that age group uh, because that's what who what happens and that's what we're interested in no doubt Mm. but you were searching for a greater purpose Mm. something that had a lot more substance and a lot more meaning 
And mm. that's probably in many ways central to this notion of a continuous learner and unlearner. Someone yes. who continues to, to search for ways in which they can be better than they were yesterday. Mm. 100%. Phil, Phil, what is your perspective? I'm going to get you to jump in here, mate. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested, first of all, in this, as, as Adriano pointed out, I think the, uh, the similarities of our, our journey are that, you know, I've learned a lot on travel, certainly not about getting drunk in London. That might have happened at some point, but hmm. it's, it's, it's more about getting different perspective around. There are two things that you've mentioned so far that I, I want to pick up on if, if we can. The hmm. first is the notion of your passion. I was having a conversation with Mike Downey, the headmaster of Selwyn House School in Montreal. And he was saying that above everything, what he wants in teachers is that they are passionate about what they do. So that's picking mm. up one thing. And then last night I was having a conversation with our colleagues at, uh, at DISC, Digitally Integrated Student Communities, and they were talking about the importance of enjoying your journey in the world. So we've got yes. passion and we've got enjoyment. Why is it important for somebody in the entrepreneurial space to be passionate and enjoy what they're doing? So a couple of things. Fundamentally, just practically, to start a business, you know most of them are going to fail. Half of them in the first year, 96% a decade later. So the odds of being successful are low. So how do you beat those odds? You're going to work your face off. And so for me, that was abundantly clear. I'd read all the books on entrepreneurs before. They were like, if you want to do this, like one, accept that everyone thinks they're going to be, they're going to make it and very few actually do. So there's like a level of like accepted delusion to even begin. And then secondly, it's very likely at the start, your friends will all think you're crazy. You'll have to quit your job. You'll work longer hours. You'll earn less money and you have to take full responsibility if it fails. Now there's a sort of person that that's suited for, I believe, although you can teach it. And in terms of loving it, if you don't love what you're doing 12, 14, 16 hours a day, um, I know KPMG put out a huge report in Australia. It was either beginning of this year or late last year around the mental health of founders in businesses. And it's abysmal because we work stupid hours. Most don't even take four weeks off a year. They take less than the average full-time worker. And on that note, they're, they're worried about finances. Lots, lots invest and lose a lot of money. So for me, in that space at the start, it had to be about something deeper. It had to be about something greater. Uh, and I love the Japanese word ikigai and the way they define passion in the ikigai framework is that it's the alignment between what you love and what you're good at. So mm -hmm. in a competitive marketplace, yeah, you've got to love it. But if you love it, and you're no good at it, you're delusional. And if you're good at it, and you don't love it. It's like me as an engineer. Um, and so what I wanted, I didn't want to do a career that I was good at and didn't love. I didn't want to be delusional and think I could do something I couldn't. So I, I found that there was a purpose there that was deeper, that I wanted to help somebody else. And that drove me. I was pulled towards it. I don't have to push myself. There's something there that I'm being spiritual, religious, universe, whatever it is. There's something there that I, I can accept that notion at like 29. I'm like, maybe this like being put on the planet for something. Like in the first time in my life, I'm starting to go, maybe this is that thing. And you hear people talk about it all through the ages. And I've always gone, oh, I don't know about that. But now I'm like, I think this is it. And it feels, it feels right. And I don't know. I don't, we don't, I don't think we have the words. I don't have the words um, to describe that. So, so maybe through enjoyment and through passion, you can discover purpose and maybe that's vocation. And that's part, that's part of what we talk about here at a school for tomorrow is, is the whole journey of the pathway to excellence is to help someone find their purpose and then run with it as yes. hard as they can. And I'll give you one, Phil, I love that. I'll give you one on the idea of curiosity. So, you know, you're talking about the idea of learning and unlearning things. Mm. I think learning is fundamentally based on curiosity. I think so is fun. So if you think about a time, the last time, you had fun or if your listeners are listening the last time you had fun what were you doing and odds are 
when you're having fun, you're asking questions. When I go snowboarding and I have fun, I'm like, oh, what's over here? What's over here? And I'm like bouncing around like a puppy on the beach. Like it's curiosity that drives fun for me. If I know exactly what's going to happen, it's not that fun. It's like if you sit in bed and you've got a box of Krispy Kremes, it's fun and different for the first one or two. But after the sixth or seventh, you just start feeling sick. You know yeah. what's going to happen. So there's that little bit of the adventure, the variety, the unknown, the balance of yin and yang, all of that stuff of if I'm asking questions and I love learning is I can find a book, pull a book off the shelf that I've never read. And I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to learn from this. But like that curiosity for me drives fun. Um, and curiosity has driven all my growth as well. Yeah, there's a real there's a real quality of openness there, but also the willingness to ask open ended questions. I think is is really interesting. I noticed this quality in our in our producer Oliver when he's um he's playing with questions and he's very very playful with questions, mm. and uh, and and away it goes. Let's talk a little bit about campus consultancy, sure. which is your your business. Currently, it supports more than thirteen thousand student leaders from over thirty two universities to date. You founded it in 2017. You do workshops on leadership and entrepreneurship on emotional intelligence. You do TEDx talks. You lecture at University of Melbourne Social Enterprise Incubator course. You're a World Cup. It's, it's more than just curiosity. There's, there's busyness there too. And it's yes. good busyness. You know, it's, yes. it's, it's engagement in the world. Why is all this work so important to you? Yes, it's art. It's not work. Tell me more. What does that mean? There aren't too many guitarists who love playing guitar, who sit down on a Saturday with nothing to do, play the, f the first song and go, oh, I have to play another song. They get to. It's the expression of something, you know, whether it's a muse or it's just what they love to do. And so for me, this is something that even when I'm running workshops and traveling around the country, I played drums growing up. And, you know, I was never, you know, the delusional thing. I love drums, but I wasn't, I was, I was good at it, but I wasn't like world-class at it, you know? which there's a massive delta between being competent at something and world-class. And I never had that like traveling musician thing. So when I like travel for work and I'm running workshops, I'm not traveling for work. I'm on tour. And when I run workshops, I'm literally on a stage. And for me, it's presenting and it's sharing. So I'm really intentional about the vocabulary I use because I think words have a lot of power. And so for me, when it's art, it's creative. Um, Seth Godin said something like, when it's work or when it's a job and you work really hard and you're busy, like you wear out, you burn out. But when it's art and you love it, you want to do more of it. My goal every day is to do more of the work, not less. Like I'm doing as much as I possibly can fitting in podcasts and talks and webinars. I was talking to Melbourne high school, the boys in year 10 last night. Um, and I don't even really historically work with high schools, but I was like, yeah, I think I could, I could squeeze in in two hours to talk to these kids about, you know, picking more than just the best subject for an ATAR. I just want to do more of it. I don't want to do less. Uh, and that's what I find that common trend in anyone I know who loves what they do. They're obsessed with it. Not because they have to be. So Josh, where, where do you think this curiosity for living has come from? Because it's not just simply through your encounters internationally and also here and, and where you've been brought up with. What really burns inside of you? Where's that burning inside of you, this vocation to serve the other? Because that's what we're hearing here. We're hearing this yes. powerful vocation to serve the other. It's yes. something that you, you wake up every day and, and you wake up and you choose breathing and you choose living, uh, mm. you know, over simply the status quo of existing. Mm. So mm. where does mm. this curiosity really come from? Oh, mate, if there's just so many ideas that are on top of themselves there, which I love. I love the complexity of it. Um, I always get used to get teased by my friends because I tell stories and they do this 
And as I was telling the story, they'd just do this in front of me because they knew as the story got to the end that it'd just plummet, like there'd be no end. Because I was just, I just wanted that, I was, I was curious about the journey. It was never like some end point. Um, one of the things that you said there, interesting, when you like breathe it in, the word like inspire and, um, and perspire and all that sort of stuff is all about, it's like breathing in life. So for me, I get inspiration when I travel, I go to a new place, I read a new book, I speak to a new person. And I'm just trying to breathe all that in. Where do I think that comes from? My quote when I was traveling was the Socrates quote, which is the unexamined life is not worth living. And for me, where that, where I think that came from is when I was younger and I was, you know, the classic sort of childhood story. When I was five, I think I was about five, my dad left home and my mum, who was a teacher, raised my brother and I. He was three, I was five. Now, yeah. mum's a single mum. She's working at a public high school, Eleonora on the Gold Coast, uh, not a particularly wealthy suburb I later found out. Um, single mom raising kids basically off no child support at age eight she did what I think is the coolest thing ever I don't know I think this is like the most untapped secret of all time she did a teacher exchange so we literally swapped lives with and the educators would be familiar but in most professions people don't know what that is like we swapped lives with a family in Canada when I was eight years old we took off on Christmas it was 30 degrees on the Gold Coast in Queensland in summer we landed in Edmonton in Alberta, Canada. It was minus 30 degrees and I'd never seen snow. And so when we got there, I'm eight years old. And this is the first time in my life I can really think of just like always being like, what's going on? I was like, why do we drive on the other side of the road? And they were like, why do you drive on the other side of the road? And I'm like, that's a good question. I don't have an answer for that. And I was like, I was like, oh, now I understand why Christmas is like Santa's in a suit at Christmas and why there's like tinsel on the tree because it's cold over here and it's Christmas is winter and it's not like that in Australia. So it's just all these things that I was like, oh, why is our $5 note pink? And their like $20 note was pink. It was like the colors were all different. And the, even the packets of chips, original chips in Australia are blue, whereas overseas they're red or they're yellow. So like all these little things were different. And I think for me, I was just fascinated by that. And I think with change and things that are different, and I find it with students, I find it with leaders, I find it with companies, you can either see things that are different as they're wrong and you judge them and you label them and you reinforce your own beliefs, or you go, maybe I'm wrong or not even wrong, but maybe the way I do things is just software I've downloaded. Carl mm -hmm. Jung says, you don't have an idea an idea has you. And I think there's so much truth in that concept of, of just, we've downloaded this idea. I'm not the first one to have it. And I like questioning it. So Josh, what I'm hearing is that you're very blessed to have a mother who introduce you to the power of curiosity and yes. the power of wonder and the power of awe. It's great. And, and I really appreciate you sharing that, that very personal story there of that yeah. journey because uh, uh, often travel does unlock so much, but we need a champion, don't we? We need someone who, who introduces us to the idea or gives us the permission. Mm. I'm, sitting, I'm sitting here listening to this dynamic young man who operates at a pace and a velocity that's very consistent with the times that we're living in. Mm. What I'd really like to know, and I'm sure our listeners would, is what does Josh do to pause? What does he do to stop? What does he do in this process of continuous learning and unlearning to simply pause and reflect? One of the things that's been a great, a great blessing of an engineer is this idea of efficiency and knowing what to point that efficiency at. So for me, every person on the planet, Oprah, Nelson Mandela, yourselves, myself, my mom, whoever, has 168 hours in a week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, if you sleep eight hours a night, and I like eight or nine hours sleep, that gives you eight hours a night, it's 112 hours. That's a bloody lot of time. And so with 112 hours, I'm really intentional. So at the moment, like this, this exact week, 
I'm doing, I wake up just before five, but I'm knocking off at 5.30 most nights. So it's a 12 and a half hour day, which is a long day. And I'm like tired by the end of it. But I know to be up by five o'clock, I've only got to be asleep by nine. So between five and 9 p.m., I've got four hours. And in those four hours, like it is, I am switched off. It is reading. I'm watching Netflix. I can just, whatever it is, and I don't beat myself up about it. And what I find, one of the stories in lots of the professional development books is, you know, there's the CEO who spends her whole day at the office or her whole week at the office thinking about being at the beach with her family and her kids. And then when she's at the beach with her family and her kids on the weekend, she spends a whole time at the beach thinking about being back at the office. And the point is she's in neither place. And so for me, when I'm working, I'm in it. It's my art. It's like creative. I love it. I'm trying to connect. But when I'm not there, I'm off. I'm reading books. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm trying to find one of the two things I think I can control externally is what goes in my eyes and my ears. So like if people are listening to this podcast right now, you could be listening to the news report, finding out who's dying in what country, but you're choosing to listen to something that might give you a new idea or spark something in you. Same thing with your eyes. You can scroll social media and compare yourself to others, or you can read a book and learn from some of the brightest people in history who've literally changed our planet. Josh, Josh, I'm going to jump in. One, sorry, mate. Do it. How do you, uh, really simple. How do you really disconnect, mate? I'm listening to all of this, right? Yes. But I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you just get yourself drawn back into to, to the passion in what you do. And I love that. Yes. And, I, yes. and I love the fact that I'm talking to this dynamic individual who, who, genuinely genuinely cares about what he does yeah like like you you believe to your bones yes right yes what do you do to disconnect josh it's funny how do you what do you forgive me on the the brashness of this but i just want to make a i want to make a counterpoint you shared before that like a catholic man how do you disconnect from your catholicism ah that's not really that difficult my friend Fair enough. So I can't tell you why it's not that difficult and I'm going to get into myself into a lot of trouble. That's okay. I just have have to think about my faith in the context of the institutionalized church. Then I can disconnect very easily. When I think about it from the context of the teachings of Jesus or what a gospel proclaims and calls me to be, Hmm. then, then uh, I'm actually, I don't actually need to disconnect because that's omnipresent. And my, my process of, of love, love, compassion and forgiveness is part of then my construct. And what I do then to disconnect in relation to my faith is I take opportunities either to meditate or to pray, but mm-hmm. I do that in a, in a position of healing myself and forgiving myself for whatever it is that I'm putting too much pressure on myself about. Because I'm yes. often a person who aspires for, for uh, perfection over excellence. Yeah. Yes. And we know, and we know that perfection is a false yeah. economy. It's a false God. Yes. It and all it does is going to drive us nuts. Hence why I sometimes have to forgive myself and go, well, that's an unrealistic expectation of you're placed on yourself. And then I need to go away and then give myself space and time to, to really disconnect. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I like your idea of when you said, when I'm meditating or praying as a form of disconnection, whereas for me, I think maybe that's the part of that that I relate to the most of when I'm, for me, recharging, like if you're just like, Josh, what do you do to just, what's your dream day? If you couldn't open your laptop, right? What's your dream day? It's being with my partner. It's being out in nature. It's, but it's, it's also an element of learning. Like on my weekends, I'm learning. I want to read a book. I want to put something in my eyes and ears. Like I like, I like the idea for me, I'm not personally a religious person traditionally, but I think like that divine spirit in me is the ability to imagine and create and to dream and to be thankful for what I have. So 
little moments to disconnect. It's in the shower every day and I do my gratitude practice. Um, it's a walk, it's a long walk in nature, but you know, the idea of just being alone with my thoughts, uh, I know Blaise Pascal would have words to say about this, but, um, a great walk for me in nature is also listening to a podcast. You know, it's, I want to hear this. It's so much to suck in from all of the world and all these amazing people. Like, yes, maybe. And maybe this is, a, I'm very open to this being a flaw and very open for your thoughts, but a two hour walk by myself, not that into a two hour walk by myself where I'm listening to the best in the world talk about how they manage something like, I don't know, that does it for me. I don't know. That, sounds, that sounds absolutely amazing, Josh. Absolutely amazing. Do you know, it's, it's interesting listening to both of you talk over the last few minutes. I've just really enjoyed the, the ideas bouncing around the interchange um, around that. Part of the notion of continuous learning is that it's, it's an ongoing process. Mm. At, at, at School for Tomorrow, we would talk about the importance for everybody to have some sort of spiritual practice. Now, there are some of us who have a faith basis. There are some who don't, but the notion of spirit is being connected yes. to something that is bigger than you and being yes. able to connect your purpose to what you see as the purpose yes. uh, around you. So much of what you're talking about and so many of the processes that you're talking about here speak to the heart and mind and soul of an entrepreneur. Most of the people who listen to our podcast are educators. We mm. think, um, and they're people who are trying to think about the future of education and what we can do and so on. Part of the challenge that we've had over the last 10, 15, 20 years is to teach people entrepreneurship mm. because we don't. Mm -hmm. We really, really don't teach entrepreneurship. Sometimes we try and do it. And I suspect more often than not, we're earnest, we're hardworking, we're diligent and entrepreneurship becomes just like any other subject, a thing that you tick the box and do the assessment task and da -da -da -da, that doesn't make you an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So much of what you are doing, which is your practice is being influenced by your sense of people, your sense of place, your purpose. It's that whole package. It is your being. It is the process of becoming that you are going through. Mm -hmm. How can we help educators and schools to connect with that sense of becoming a couple of things and there's different schools of thoughts on this i believe you can definitely and by believe i mean i've seen it and seen measurable quantifiable results that from my own work you can teach entrepreneurial skills you can teach those skills you can teach someone how to find a problem get to the root cause of it customer interview ideate test measure learn you can you can teach that there's a process and teaching that I think is a fundamental skill. It's, and it's very the scientific method. I think this is what we lose. We overcomplicate this entrepreneurship business thing. That seems very, I don't know, selly rather than scientific. I don't know. There's a disconnect. Doesn't seem super academic in a lot of ways, but it's fundamentally the scientific method. It's what are you trying to achieve? Then you have a hype. What's your aim? Then you have a hypothesis. What do you think is going to happen? And then you lay out a method or a plan. Some call it a business plan or a business model canvas. And then what comes out the other end is the results. Did you sell stuff or not? Did you solve the problem or not? Um, and then you have your discussion to, at the end. Okay, well, what are we going to do about that? What does that mean? It's super scientific. Uh, and Eric Reese writing a lean startup really revolutionized the thinking there. So for me, in, from an education perspective, I think what the future needs, long goal. So I'll take my own advice. Aim, what does the future need? We need leaders who can solve interesting problems. We don't need to solve, we, there's new problems of the planet that we are coming up against. How do we solve those? We need people who are interested in those and are willing, I believe, to break the status quo. What I love about entrepreneurship 
is it says problems equal opportunities. If there's a problem in the world, it's an opportunity. Like COVID, face masks, that's literally a financial opportunity. People are selling things. Is it evil to sell something that keeps people healthy? I don't think so. I think that's great. Um, and so what I'm really interested in is, can you get younger people to get more immersed in the complexity of social issues at a variety of levels, super local, super global, and then give them the, I don't know how you give them, this is where it starts to get harder, where it gets into the drive. Can you encourage them? Can you observe them? Can you look at what, what do their eyes look at? What do they focus on? And then if they're interested in economics or finance or flowers or music or whatever it is, encourage them in every way to see how that's a viable career. And, and I, I, just, I just want to interrupt you there for a moment yeah. because, again, there's a conversation that uh, we've been having with Jamie McNeil. She's the Director of Teaching and Learning at St David's School in Manhattan. She's yes. very, very big on this notion of teachers noticing and responding in yes. their students. And sometimes, particularly the older students, get we move away from that notion of noticing and, in, and instead perhaps what we need to do is spend more time where the students are our study Mm. as a teacher it's not about the content it's about the students yes 100 percent. i was on a zoom call recently um, with a bunch of students they're about to pick their year 12 so uh year 11 12 subjects and one of the students piped up and said to the year advisors and all the heads of the school and whatever and they said you know i want to do a a vet subject like a tafe subject you know i want to do carpentry or i want to do something like that and can i do it and the school then spent the next 15 minutes from three or four different voices saying, well, you could do it, but you know, it's very competitive, but you could do it, but you've got to be really sure you want to do it. You could do it, but you know, it's very, it's, I don't know if it's really for you. It doesn't have the same career. And they just multi, this young person said, said, didn't have to observe anything said, I'm interested in this. And three or four adults in their life who they trust gave them five, 10, 15 reasons to not believe in themselves. And a little bit of my soul didn't die. It probably did the opposite. It lit on fire in that moment to say, ah, that's an interesting problem. Young people are actually saying what they're interested in. And the yeah, adult this voice. Point, Josh. This is yeah. where the interesting point lies. Just sitting here listening to, to the interchange between you and Phil. You spoke a moment ago around the fact that entrepreneurship and, and the skills and the thinking, has, there's formulas associated to it. Balance sheets, profit and loss, uh, um, how to do the marketing components, all the different mechanics that make up, you know, really good entrepreneur skills. And they're, they're really fundamental thinking processes as well. Yes. But what, what we're finding is the missing ingredient is how are we encouraging these young people to take the risk in their learning, to take that actual leap and say, okay, here's a formula, here's a structure. That gives you some degree of psychological safety, right? Yes, yes, but you're, yes. You've you're got a mindset already where you're giving yourself permission every day to learn something new. How do we, in, in, in education, go into a school mm. and help the adults, help the young people, not only see their possibility, but help them understand that every day is this, this, this bountiful discovery. Mm. And sometimes the discovery is profound and awe-inspiring. Sometimes it's average. Mm. But that's part of that journey. How do we get to a point where we help young people to have the psychological safety to be able to take these risks and give themselves permission to simply try. One thing 
just super practically, I think it's around incentives. If a school is, if you look at the school's marketing and the way that they measure themselves and it's X percent of our students get a score above this and get into these Ivy league schools, then when the kid puts their hand up and says, I don't want to go down your golden pathway, you have an incentive to whack them back on. And where I noticed this in my life, when I was an engineer, I got paid a salary. I wanted things to go quick. The guys on site, construction workers got paid hourly. They had a financial incentive for things to go slowly. So Josh, we I appreciate that, but that's an, that's an extrinsic motivation, really, isn't it? And, and, and all research and theories yes. is going to say that an, yes. an extrinsic motivation is going to have its place for a period of time. How am I going to get to a young person, a young man and young woman, yes. to get to an intrinsic motivation to want to be able to do this? Yeah, and I'm saying the teacher, there's an ownership of the teacher to acknowledge where are their motivations, intrinsic or extrinsic. I think teachers get, my parent, again, right, single mom coming from a teacher, right? She taught in the lowest socioeconomic brackets possible, kids with learning disabilities. Yeah. She had a complete intrinsic motivation for that profession, which I respect. What I notice and what I see and what I hear in workshops with teachers, and now I'm not an expert in this space, it's just what I'm observed. So I'm just, I'm reporting, I'm not judging, is that there was an extrinsic motivation and that extrinsic motivation was sitting and depressing and pushing down this spark in this young person. Mm -hmm. And so it's not that a like, young person doesn't need a spark. The kid has a spark, but that spark needs fuel. Go light a match and throw it on the floor with no fuel and see what happens. Nothing. Light a match and then build a fire around it, build the infrastructure, put some fuel on it. It'll burn. So the young person, I think need, my belief is they need support that when they have that moment, when they say, I'm kind of interested in this, that someone goes, that's amazing. How can I help you? How can I support you? Regardless of their view, their values or their motivations. It's got to be about support. And that's that, that's that inside out development thing, isn't it? It's got to start from inside the person. I think sometimes the challenge for a lot of colleagues in schools hmm. is to be able to feel free to respond to their own inside motivation. There's a reason why teachers become teachers. Yes. Um, they become teachers because they want to make a difference in the world. They want to make a difference in the lives of their students and they can feel the pressure of their own extrinsic um, stimuli and finding that, that sense of purpose. It's, it just keeps coming back to purpose again and again and again. If your yes. purpose is to learn, if your purpose is to grow, if your purpose is to develop then, and, and you're enthusiastic and you're excited about it, you can take it along with you. Josh, I, I, wanna just, I just wanna take it in a slightly different tack for a moment. A couple of questions I love asking can-do people because I'm, I'm just, you know, difficult sometimes. What's something that you've been As trying in your work? Yeah, well, look, and, and to Prado, of course. Um, what's, what's something that you've tried in your work that you wouldn't do again and why? Ooh, something I've tried in my work that I wouldn't do again and why? Oh, that's hard. I'll tell you, and I hate that word. I'll tell you why that's challenging for me to think of an example. Because all the things I've done have led me to this point. So, I mean, look, there, there's, a, there's a certain LinkedIn post that I put out that didn't do particularly well, so I stopped doing it. There's tactical stuff, but the little tactical stuff, I know that if I juggle seven balls, I'm going to drop three of them. I mean, without giving you something that's, that's very light, it's exploration. I, here's the parallel. There's no right answer in the back of the book. So because there's no right answer, my metric for success is what emotions do I feel day by day? That's it. And if I'm feeling emotions that are good, then I'm doing well. And I don't think I'm going to get there in one step. I think happiness is the way. So every day in the business, I'm just, I'm trying to feel the emotions that I want. That's what I'm optimizing for. I don't know if there's anything. Honestly, I think my answer is sure in hindsight, but I don't know that I wouldn't take the risk, you know, like butterfly effect, the movie, right? Yep. 
I wouldn't take the risk of rubbing a rubber through something I did in the past because I don't know how that might change right now. And where everything is right now is great. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if there is anything I wouldn't do again. So, but a lot of this is about mindset, isn't it? This is about growth mindset and irrepressible, oh. uncontainable, un, almost uncontrollable growth mindset, isn't it? it it's pure. That's what, I'm try, that's what I'm optimizing for. Now, I don't always have that, but that's it's the point of having values and purpose, right? It's something you strive towards. So for that growth mindset, yes, I believe that everything that happens in the past is, I love the Ray Dalio quote, pain plus reflection equals progress. And so it's like, if I want to progress, things need to go wrong and I have to learn from them. Yeah. And, and Henry Masoma, who's one of the partners in our, in our, in our little enterprise, he, he would talk very much about that pain point and being able to work with pain and find the positives that you can work through that because it's not all sunshine and roses, is it? Oh, that would be delusional. So one of the things we balance there is going, there's a difference between being naive and being optimistic. I want to be super optimistic, but I also want to be able to face the facts. And it's so much work. Like, do I want to wake up at 5am most mornings? Like not most mornings necessarily. Do I have a reason to? Yes. Do I love it once I'm up? Yes. But it's, it's much easier to order a pizza and watch Netflix all day than it is to, to get on the phone and make sales and invoice and create businesses and get rejected and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Everything good is outside of the comfort zone. Let me pick up for a moment on that point about rejection, if I can. Yeah. How is it that you can, like, you know, it's, it's, it's like the ugly bloke at the bar. We're back talking about bars again, DePrato. It's all your fault. Um, it's, it's like being the ugly bloke at the bar. Okay, that, that, that's me. Okay, I've spent a lifetime being that person. So I'm used to being rejected and somebody saying no at the end of the day. But for a lot of people, that's a very difficult thing to deal with. How, do, how have you learned to deal with rejection? as a continuous learner and unlearner. And I hope this doesn't sound too sort of like airy, but I would say you didn't get rejected at the bar, your offer did, and that's very different. And that whatever that offer was, whether it's literally the visual stimuli, that was rejected, the words, the voice, the tone, whatever, but it's not you, it's not the soul that gets rejected. So in business, if I send a message to someone or a proposal, happened last week, happened three times in a day, sent three proposals out, thought they were all great, all of them came back and said no. They didn't reject me, they rejected the offer. The rejection of me is ego and like that's thinking it's me is my ego. And the, easy, the hardest thing in the business, in my experience, was killing that ego. The thing that helped me do that was going, oh, everything's my responsibility. Like it's my responsibility to do this and enjoy the process. No amount of money, no one saying yes to the deal. That can't make me happy. I've got to be happy regardless of that stuff. Okay, so so in our conversation, I want to track this through if I can, because there's some, yeah, of course. there's some research there's some research that I want to bring in at the end, and we, we're getting to the end, towards the end of our conversation. Sadly, this has been such such an interesting, exciting chat to be part of. A a continuous learner and unlearner is prepared to learn and unlearn throughout their life. Yeah, we talked about growth mindset and and the continuing to grow and improve. You are you are an absolutely living case study in transformation, and and its power to take the life spirit of someone and propel it forward. There are four elements to this. is knowledge, understanding how different approaches to learning can help you to build your adaptive expertise and your self-efficacy. That's your organising yourself. That's the optimising bit that you talked about. Yeah. There's creating successful research and development implementation. That's skills. And then there's the being, which is about planning. We, we heard about your planning steps and, and, how, and how you believe that those sorts of things can be taught and transmitted to people. Yes. The final piece is about the learning piece, which is about how you reflect on the relationship between your growth 
and mm. your change readiness. And this is what we've come into now, which is separating out yourself from your work and understanding that the two of them are really quite different. That takes a level of emotional maturity. How do you get that practice? How do you acquire that skill? And then do you think you can teach that to someone? Explain to me the idea that thinking you and your work are different. Okay, so let's start with the notion that we, 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 we have the formation of identity. And our identity is made up of that combination of things that we talked about earlier, our purpose, mm. our people, our mm. place and our mm. practice. If we overinvest in our practice, then what we do becomes who we are. And it becomes very, very difficult to separate that out and say, Do you know what? I am who I am. I'm, 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 I'm okay after all. It's just that the work that I've been doing today is probably not my best work. As you said, mm my offer might not have been my best offer or it might, might have been my best offer. You just didn't like it, you know, so. Yeah, which is fine. Exactly. Okay. So maybe, I don't know, this is interesting because this is, I'm always looking for those internal contradictions because for me, it's always like, where do I, where do I not live up to what I believe? So let me explore this. One of the things that helped me leave engineering was that I realized I detached my identity. I hadn't become an engineer. I built engineering skills and I could deploy those skills wherever I went. So I very think of like, you know, this is a terrible metaphor, but like the Death Star, you build the Death Star and then you can point it at whatever you want to point it at. So I kind of think of it like that. Like I build all these skills and I can point me at whatever I want. The harder part for me to detach is whether it was engineering or working in a bar, I never had that like emotional, spiritual, deep purpose connection. Whereas now I really do. And so I know if I worked 18 hours a day, I'd burn out and that doesn't help me achieve my purpose. But I also, I don't know if I could say that I'm, if you were to ask people very close to me, I don't know if I am detached from my work. I don't know if I have that when you're like, oh, do you have it? Like, how do you get it? And how do you teach it to people? I don't even know if I have it. Like, this is, I could shut down my business tomorrow. I believe, I, now you can call me on this in five years time if this is bullshit. I believe I could close my business tomorrow, go and live in a little cabin in the woods with my partner read books and be mesmerized by life and help people for free and zoom chats and do stuff like that and be very happy. Like the business doesn't need to grow, but there's, I'd still want to learn and I'd still want to give away what I'm learning. I'd still want to, I want to pass it on. Um, I don't think I could sit there in a cave and meditate and be happy. I think you've just answered the question really, haven't you? Adriano, I'm going to hand over to you for the last question. It's really clear to me, Josh, not only listening to this, but seeing your evolution unfold, uh, particularly on social media and your presence in that particular space, there's a, a huge generosity in your being. And although on one level, you're talking about wanting to constantly grow and evolve, mm -hmm. the, the purpose is clear that as you do that, you become so much more effective and better for the other. Uh, and that's really clear. And that's been clear in this conversation here today. I'm interested though, You've quoted a number of different authors throughout this particular conversation mm. and reading is something that is significant to you. Yes. Can you share with our listeners what is the profoundness of reading mm. that continues to draw you in mm. and back again and again and again? Firstly, thank you for that, those comments. It's always very nice to hear. Um, and as you know, from the earlier conversation, I idolized my mother as the first leader in my life. Um, and she gave me the mindset that leadership is service, that I believe leadership is when you help another, 
which is very tied to the religious roots as well. So whenever someone describes me as generous or something like that, that sort of goes straight at the soul. Um, so thank you. On the reading front, I didn't really until I was 25, like it's a joke, met a guy in Mexico. He basically said, you need to start reading books. I did like sometimes the universe is weird, um, <laughs> and, which is, which is odd. And one of the things for me was it, when I look at books, someone has compressed the best of what they've learned into a few hundred pages. Like, and they're to write a book is, is like, I'm writing one. I'm trying to write my first one now. It's bloody hard. And like everyone I listen to who writes them says it's like, it's torturous. And like, I'm like why would they go through all that effort? Unless oh, trust, they, us, trust they, us, Josh, it is pain. It is absolute pain. Oh, you guys and are writing one. Yeah, well, you've written uh, them. I'm ex- not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's part of what we do. And it's, it's both pain and exquisite joy, but carry on. Carry yes. On. So it's like, if they've put that much effort in, they must have something to share, you know? And so when, I mean, you look at all the scripts that have lasted thousands of years, they're all books. You know, they're all written in books. I have this belief and this trust that there has to be something good in there. There has to be a reason why they've done that. There must be a reason there's such artifacts in our culture. And when I keep coming back to books, one of the things that I accepted was when I started reading books, I realized I was just becoming a high achiever at books. I was just reading lots of books, you know, but then someone sort of said to me like, oh, do you, do you remember them? Do you use them? And my metric then became, okay, well, if I'm going to read this book, I'm going to really try to live it. And there's some great examples of books who write books about doing that. And so for me, when I started living it, I started seeing the results. And that was the difference. I was like, oh, if I read the thing and do it in my life, life gets better. And then my secret was going down the rabbit hole. So Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, if you want a new idea, read an old book. And I think that's profound. So for me, it's not just, you know, the latest 2015, 2020 pop psychology book, although I love those. It's like my guilty pleasure. But like the stuff that was written 50, 100, 500, I just reread the Tao Te Ching 2,500 years ago. In the Tao Te Ching, he says, the way to do more is to do less. And now in 2020, we talk about work-life balance. Like two and a half thousand years ago, they were talking about the same things, the same problems we have are in the books. I want to read about how other people have done them. And instead of making all the mistakes myself, maybe I can learn from their mistakes and at least make unique and interesting ones for myself. Well, I'm going to wrap it up now, uh, Josh, because on that note of less is more, which is what you're espousing right there. (laughs) Yes. I I just want to finish off by saying this. It it has been an absolute delight to uh, finally get to speak with you in this way. We've had a lot of uh, interaction over the years on social media about lots of different things. And I've really appreciated that. But today has taken... uh, friendship to a, to a completely different level. I, I'm speaking to a young man who has an insatiable appetite for life, for mm. living and for people. It is uh, so refreshing. If I could bottle you up and, and, and market you and take you to every single primary school and secondary school in the world, uh, we would have a, a lot of very enthusiastic young people uh, because your, your energy is infectious. What's really most profound for me is that you've heard the, the phrase before, half glass full and half glass empty. Mm. I think you're beyond the half glass full, Josh. You're remaining thirsty. Thirsty for a new experience, thirsty for, for a new way in which you can not only can continue to grow, but bigger than that, how you can continue to contribute. Those 1,300 student leaders that you have worked with over 32 different uh, universities where you have touched upon leadership, where you have touched upon entrepreneurship, where you have touched upon uh, emotional intelligence, can I say... They're only, they're only words, they're only headings, they're only the vehicle to get people in to experience your energy, your passion and your purpose. I think that's the greatest lesson that the people will take away from, from not only this, but the people that encounter you on a daily basis. Josh Farr, thank you very much for being you. 
I wish you exceptionally well and success on your journey of continual personal discovery. And uh, no doubt we're going to cross paths again. Thank you very much, my friend. Thanks, fellas. That means the world to me. I appreciate it. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.